patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody and welcome to episode 71 of friends and fellow citizens i'm your host sherman tylowski thank you all so much for joining me today i hope you had a wonderful christmas and are having a wonderful holiday season might still have some christmas cheer and spirit within you Um, i hope you'll like today's episode today is our final 2021 episode and today is also another sacred honor series episode This week's signer of the Declaration of Independence is Elbridge Gary of Massachusetts. As a quick reminder, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Even better, subscribe to our email list so that you get the latest news, announcements, and updates from the show. You can sign up right at shermantyloski.com down in the show notes below. Today's signer, as I mentioned, is Elbert Gary, who was born in 1744 in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Gary is an interesting figure, and I think you'll find a lot of idiosyncrasies with this man. Although, when I say idiosyncrasies, I don't mean in a negative way. I mean that it's more about the combination of his traits that make him unique. While there isn't much known about his childhood, we do know that he eventually got into becoming a businessman, and he was actually very successful in that. His father was in business at the time, and he really picked up that trade. And he eventually used this as a major platform for him becoming involved in politics. As the saying goes, uh, all politics is local. Well, that's exactly what he took advantage of. When he was younger, in 1770, he served on a local committee to enforce the ban on the sale and consumption of tea. As some of you might know, at that time, we had something called the Tea Act, which was a tax that was placed on all imported tea. And this was obviously very controversial. And this really stemmed from a number of other taxes that came about, which were called the Townsend Acts. Tea was kind of seen as a bit of a compromise because... British thought that it was very popular and that it would still show that the crown was superior than that of the colonial governments. Gary was very well connected. As he was getting that political training and education at Harvard, um, later on in his life when he began to get himself involved in politics, he got to know people like Samuel Adams and John Adams, Robert Tree Payne, three of the individuals we had already previously covered in this series. And with the benefit of having those personal and political connections, as well as the commercial connections that he had as a wealthy businessman, Gary became a very prominent player in the early stages of the American Revolution, even before the fighting technically began with Lexington and Concord. In June 1774, things got really, really heated in Boston. 
And the, it got so bad that the British government shut down the port of, of Boston, thereby not allowing even a single vessel with goods to come into Boston. Probably unless there was some kind of provision to it, if there was, if it was for the British military, obviously they, you know, they sent British soldiers there. So there were exceptions to the rule. With the port of Boston essentially shut down, Marblehead, Massachusetts became a very big port for the colonists. Because Gary already had those connections, and because he was a Marblehead a hometown guy, he was in charge of helping to procure ammunition, supplies, and goods for colonists, many times very secretly. He was able to break deals with other merchants. Um, he was one of those individuals who, over time, really saw the need for independence. By the same time, he didn't let those affinities and those connections go. He used them to his own advantage and for the advantage of the Patriot cause. When the first battles of Lexington and Concord began, well, it didn't go super-duper well at first for people like Elbridge Gary. One time, he was at a tavern with another gentleman, and just when Paul Revere and William Dawes set out to warn colonists about the, how the British were coming, it got so close between the British soldiers marching through on their way to Lexington and Concord and the tavern that Gary and this other gentleman had to literally flee at night with their robes on, and hide in nearby cornfields. Pretty darn scary moment for Gary, and I don't even know how he was able to even process any of that, because as people can imagine, even before the Declaration of Independence was signed, it was still considered treason to have any kind of feelings against George III, the monarchy, and the British government. Gary eventually served in multiple positions in the state and provincial levels. He really became a very prominent figure starting around the time when he was about to sign the Declaration of Independence. Even before the signing, there were still a number of delegates in the middle colonies who refused or were hesitant to support independence. My theory is that because some of these individuals simply were very, honestly, very concerned about their own livelihoods. They were concerned that independence was never going to be obtained. They were concerned about the harsh penalties that would be put on to themselves and their communities, not just their families. But Gary had incredible political will and talent. He was so adamant in his principles, but also unusually respectful of the processes in which he had to go through, the deliberative process, knowing that people were going to come in with different perspectives. He still had some level of respect for others. He wanted to pursue Republican principles, Republican principles in the sense of protecting civil liberties, democratic values, security of from the state obviously you need some element of that you need 
a good balance of powers between the executive branch and the legislative branch. These were all the values that Gary had espoused, and he was very, very good at persuading those middle colonies delegates to support independence, even though at the time, independence was not even unanimously a popular idea. Um, Some facts out there say that about a third were loyalists, basically supporting the crown. One third, approximately one third, were patriots or people who obviously did not support the crown at all. And a third were were kind of on the edge. And what's surprising is that a lot of these delegates that we've covered so far, at least for some period of time, were kind of on the fence. Because it's just not a sure thing. In hindsight, it's easy for us to say that independence was an easy task. But when you're in the midst of that, when you know that a loyalist could report you, even your neighbor or someone down the street could report you for being a, a patriot, that wasn't going to be just enough for people to sway for independence. You need to have really, really good persuasion from people like Elbridge Gary and others to say that what is happening on this ground level is not working and it will never be fixed under this system. That is why we need to completely break away and create our own system of government. And lo and behold, on September 3rd, 1776, Elbridge Gary signs the Declaration of Independence, becoming the seventh delegate to sign that historic document. Now, before we move on, I want to point out something about Gary and the relevance of his beliefs about the Constitution and how it relates to the Sacred Honor series and the episode that we're covering today. Normally for these signers, a number of them did move on to be part of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, Later, uh, some of them even signed on to the Articles of Confederation. Uh, So there were some ones that were really, really involved in the creation, literally in the creation of our country. And while normally I try to separate those differences between those who were in the Constitutional Convention and those here signing the Declaration of Independence, I'm going to do things a little bit differently with Elbridge Geary. After doing my research, I found that his conduct during the Constitutional Convention and episodes in his later life truly reflected who he was as a man throughout his time. He wasn't the same kind of person throughout, but it it was because of the later career that he had that really helped define and solidify his role signing the Declaration of Independence. The difference between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitutional Convention clearly are two different events that obviously revolve around the same creation of the same nation. But the Declaration of Independence was not a legal document. So therefore, a lot of the legal proceedings and the details there just were not even thought out. Because, I mean, if people... I mean, heck, after the signature, I'll bet a lot of these signers were just trying to look for cover. While it's the Constitutional Convention, that was really that debate of ideas about the role of government. And Gary really made a name for himself, not maybe not in the best way possible. I mentioned that he was very steadfast about his values of republicanism. 
But the Constitutional Convention was certainly not a fun ride and a fun walk in the park, so to speak. People were very, very divided in the convention between those who wanted to give states more power and those who wanted to give the federal government more power. This power dynamic eventually helped shape a lot of the early political parties in the history of the United States and some of the remnants of those two major parties that first came along, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, notably that changed into the Federalists versus the Democratic Republicans. Some of those remnants still are present in our politics today. And Gary was just known to be that man who had a lot of things to say, (laughs) to put it very mildly. Only five people in that convention spoke more often than he did. And he just constantly rose up and down, always called for motions on various different ideas and proposals. And some of his colleagues, especially those who wanted to get that national government intact, just to to get it done, get it over with, were quite annoyed by him. They probably didn't really appreciate some of the things that he said. They obviously clearly didn't agree with his ideas. I think a number of them also felt that he was trying to make a name for himself. And to be fair, he probably was at some point. He wanted to showcase the fact that he really cared about the ideas that he espoused. But Gary was particularly concerned in the for the Constitutional Convention about the lack of protection for individual rights. And it turns out Yuasha wasn't the first one and not the only one to call for individual rights to be protected. For this episode, I've, I've pulled out a letter, or really an address, that he wrote to specify some of the concerns that he had about the Constitution. And the reason why I'm going to read out this letter, it's not super duper long, but the reason why I'm putting this out is because I do think there were a number of misconceptions about him at the time, and also looking back you know, 230 years or so, there are some still some misconceptions about the early objections to the Constitution. And I do think in this letter, he does a really good job of outlining why he's opposed, and but also really how he views everybody else in the room, even the people he disagreed with. This is really, really important, especially when we tie in the Sacred Honor series with current events and current issues. That is also the reason why with this show and with this series, I don't call it a history series because history series really does a deep dive into the historical events. And that's important. And we need that as the grounding. But the civics part of the series is about taking what these signers did and applying these to our daily lives and to our civics, because that's really how we realize those lessons. And by the way, those lessons can be successes and failures. I will absolutely mention a couple of the major failures that either occurred because of Gary or perhaps because he was a bit unlucky. Now, here is the letter that he addresses to James Warren 
Uh, James Warren was the Speaker of the Massachusetts House at the time. He was a former Paymaster General of the Continental Army. So he's, I mean, as the name suggests, he was in charge of uh, the the finance part of funding for the Continental Army. Not very easy job at all. Uh, I I think he. I, my guess is that people like him probably dreaded that position over time. Uh, because the the debts, especially early on in the American Revolution, were not super pretty, became a huge, huge issue later on. The one sentence that stands out to me reads this. I know not who the authors are of the anonymous pieces, and it is a matter of no consequence to the public. The sentiments are in many respects just. Unquote. I'll stop there for a second. He's referring to pieces that are in defense of the Constitution, pieces like the Federalist Papers that were later on uh, distributed. Um, I don't believe that these are the Federalist Papers. Uh, They were published a little bit later, but it was really around this time that the Federalist Papers were going to get that traction, though. He continues, quote, My opinion with respect to the proposed Constitution is that if adopted, it will lay the foundation of a government of force and fraud that the people will bleed with taxes at every pore, and that the existence of their liberties will soon be terminated. The wealth of the continent will be collected in Pennsylvania, where the seat of the federal government is supposed to be, and those who will use the greatest address in obtaining an acceptance of this despotic system will hereafter scores the people for their folly in adopting it. Unquote. This is a very, very big rebuke against the Constitution. You know, clearly, he is not happy with how the system of government is put forth. He is not pleased about the fact that there will be a lot of discontent with the Constitution. You know, people having that buyer's remorse, essentially. And But this is now where he addresses the convention uh, with this address. says to the General Court in New York, October 18th, although he delivers this address pretty similar to also the one he delivered in Massachusetts, because as you might know, delegates return to their colonies to promote ratification in the colonial governments so that we can, they can have passage of the, the Constitution in each of those colonies. While I will not read the entire letter, every single word, I'll be sure to stop by certain passages and points along the way to offer some remarks about the significance of what Gary is trying to convey to the Constitutional Convention. Gentlemen, I have the honor to enclose, pursuant to my commission, the Constitution proposed by the Federal Convention. To this system I gave my dissent and shall submit my objections to the Honorable Legislature. It was painful for me on a subject of such national importance, to differ from the respectable members who signed the Constitution, but conceiving, as I did, that the liberties of America were not secured by the system. It was my duty to oppose it. Now, herein lies the first major point here. He expresses that it was painful for him to differ from the respectable members who signed the Constitution, The big point here is that it's not easy to just go out and say, I support individual rights, and this is why. 
you you can't go in and just start breaking bridges, destroying bridges by indirectly insulting them and thinking that they don't care about anybody or that they don't have any regard for individual liberties because that's not actually what the case was. It wasn't that people didn't care about individual liberties. Clearly, you know, there were some different times, right, with regards to the issue of voting and civil rights and others and other civil liberties, perhaps. But it was just people who were divided on whether or not to include such provisions about the guaranteeing of individual rights. And Gary acknowledges that he really wants to support this. And he and it seems to me and to the audience and to all of us that he does want to support it. But he has some these these concerns about the liberties of America not secured. It's not that he doesn't say that, oh, everyone doesn't care about them. He just thinks that they're not secured. I'll continue on. My principal objections to the plan are that there is no adequate provision for a representation of the people, that they have no security for the right of election, that some of the powers of the legislature are ambiguous, and others indefinite and dangerous, that the executive is blended with and will have an undue influence over the legislature, that the judicial department will be oppressive, that treaties of the highest importance may be formed by the president with the advice of two-thirds of a quorum of the Senate, and that the system is without the security of a Bill of Rights. These are objections which are not local, but apply equally to all the states. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about what Gary just said. First is that the support of a specific written-down Bill of Rights was quite a big deal at the time. Gary was clearly not the first one to come up with the Bill of Rights. You think of the Bill of Rights of 1689, which outlines a lot of those basic freedoms for parliaments, and this is obviously under the United Kingdom. You can see that there were a lot of parallels between these. But what really makes a big difference, though, based on what we know about the political systems of the United States and the United Kingdom is that in the United Kingdom, Parliament is sovereign, which means that everything, pretty much everything major has to go through Parliament. Yes, the monarch used to have a lot more executive say. Even recent, in recent years and decades, that has changed quite a bit, and Parliament really is the only focus. The monarch is only signing as part of the royal uh, constitutional bit, but not more of a ceremonial role rather than a practical role. Whereas here in this debate, Gary is saying that we want, we are all, we as in like the Constitutional Convention, we are all saying that the people are sovereign. This is an entirely new thing. And you cannot just guarantee the workings of government if you don't even include a specific Bill of Rights that entails exactly what freedoms people have. Because ultimately in a society according to people like him and many others at the time, the people need to understand what the relationship is going to be like between the government and the people. Because when the government steps out of bounds, it's not really a question of if, but when, 
the people will honestly know what their freedoms are, and they can point to the government and say, you, as the government, you are the ones who guarantee us these rights. No one can take these away because they weren't given by government. They were guaranteed and the protection of those rights. The next bit refers much to the first point he made. Here's what he writes. The Constitution proposed has few, if any, federal features, but is rather a system of national government. Nevertheless, in many respects, I think it has great merit, and by proper amendments may be adapted to the, quote, exigencies of government, unquote, and preservation of liberty. Gary is once again saying that the model proposed by the Constitutional Convention is not necessarily bad and has to be scrapped and dumped in the dumpster and burned incinerated so they could start a new one. He doesn't like the fact that this Constitution only describes itself and it also doesn't guarantee those freedoms, even though really the signers and the people at the Constitutional Convention and they all had intentions to protect individual freedom. And he's really outlining throughout his policy positions and his opinions on different works of government and the processes. Really, everyone's got the same intentions. But he's the one being the strongest voice in the room, literally and figuratively, and trying to convince others who have a different point of view to, at the very minimum, amend the Constitution to safeguard those freedoms. This was a very bold move by Gary. Others, like George Mason, Edmund Randolph, and several others, were also very, very good at enumerating their concerns about the lack of the Bill of Rights. Remember, some people thought, yeah, you don't really need a Bill of Rights. We have the right idea, we got the mechanisms in place in case anyone is being a tyrant like the guy we didn't like very much, George III. Uh, but uh, Gary was was really just one of the huge, huge supporters of the Bill of Rights. And, and really, it was because of him and a few others that we actually have a Bill of Rights. When Gary returned back to Massachusetts and they were discussing the ratification process, Massachusetts was the first colony to propose new amendments to the Constitution upon ratification. It wasn't binding, but it triggered a number of other colonies to follow suit. Gary would have been really, really happy to see this because now he was seeing that it wasn't just him, uh, some guy from Massachusetts, and blocking him, new, numerous amendments and motions and all. This was starting to become a national movement in such a young nation. Gary was also one who, like I said earlier, had those strong principles and even had positions that were not super duper popular at the time. For example, he very much opposed slavery. And while he eventually accepted the Constitution and the form it was put in after the Bill of Rights, he also didn't vote support of the Constitution because it didn't ban slavery. It didn't go far enough, for sure, 
on the state of slavery in America. You might recall that people who signed the Declaration of Independence and others at the Constitutional Convention, people such as those like Robert Tree Payne, the previous signer we covered in this series, they were very much opposed to slavery. And it was just not, for for different reasons, but uh, this was not an issue that clearly was going to go away. And I do think that because of signers like Robert Tree Payne and Elbridge Gerry and others who proposed at the very minimum anti-slavery measures, I do believe that that is in part how the abolitionist movement still had momentum, still had roots, because they could trace their roots and their policies back to literally the founding of the United States of America. Some, like a delegate from the Constitutional Convention, William Pierce, said that Gary's, quote, character is marked for integrity and perseverance, unquote, and that he, quote, cherishes as his first virtue a love for his country, unquote. But many others didn't see it that way. In fact, Gary, throughout his time, made a lot of enemies. This was in part because of how rigid he was. And like I said earlier, he wasn't necessarily the guy who would always calm down and just take a little break. He was just so adamant with what he was fighting for that it eventually made a lot of people upset. There were some other things where he was supporting policy positions that didn't were not necessarily bad. I mean, it could have just been cultural traditions or some other practices that have been put forth in other levels of government within the colonies that you just didn't support them. And so some people were just kind of threw up their hands, like, "Why? What? What are you doing? Why? Why are you even trying to? Why are you trying to make my life harder or our lives harder?" That's how some people really felt about him. At the beginning of this ratification process we started to see those two political parties emerge, the Federalist Party and the Anti-Federalists will later turn to the Democratic Republicans. Gary, for the most part, tried to stay away from party politics. But this really didn't catch on very well later on in his life, in part because when he was advocating for his positions on the Bill of Rights in Massachusetts, a number of Federalists of those who um, supported a strong national government uh, didn't like the fact that he was almost trying to be like an obstructionist. It didn't help with the fact that Gary was caught up in a diplomatic scandal called the XYZ Affair, which essentially was a failure for a diplomatic commission to resolve tensions with France. Uh, That certainly really hurt him, and it gave his critics a lot of fuel. And I'll mention that a little bit more later on in the episode. Gary was also called not a names. One name that he, he was pretty much associated with throughout his life by his harshest critics was him being called a Shazite. A Shazite is someone who is sympathetic to Daniel Shays. Daniel Shays was a farmer uh, who basically helped plot a revolt of a few thousand people uh, against the government, tried, literally tried to overthrow the U.S. government because of economic conditions and debt. And what happened was that this, in many ways, for, for unclear and clear reasons, helped spur 
a constitutional convention because at that time with Shays Rebellion, this occurred under the Articles of Confederation, which a lot of the signers and the delegates knew that it just wasn't going to give that strong enough national government. And this is all interesting because Gary actually, although he was very much a Republicanism person, he supported Alexander Hamilton's national plan to establish a national bank to um, pay off war debts. And perhaps it was because of what some people thought he was, some people thought he might have been uh, just going with one side or the other to try to gain fame or try to give some kind of clout. Maybe that's why people thought him as uh, someone of an unlikable guy. The Federalists got a lot of what they wanted with this national bank. And yet when he was up there defending for Bill of Rights and for just a more clear path for states to be able to have their own policies, the Federalists didn't like that. And they really, really, really criticized them, especially in the press or by um, other politicians and officials. It became so bad that it was actually one of the biggest impediments to Gary even winning the governorship of Massachusetts. He tried multiple times, but he kept failing and kept losing to a man who was seen as a more moderate person named Caleb Strong. Gary was in many ways a moderate. He was not one favoring one or the other, but in the, around the 1800 election, that's when he really started to get on board with the Democratic-Republican Party. And I'm not going to go too much into depth here about his governorship in Massachusetts, which he finally won in 1811. But this governorship would really sum up a lot of the challenges that Gary had to go through as an individual and as a politician. You see, when he won Massachusetts, he was still really, really upset at the Federalists. The Federalists had been giving him so much nonsense and so much bad criticism. It was just unbelievable. I I probably... I don't even think that anyone nowadays, including myself, could probably comprehend just how nasty what the Federalists were saying about what the, they were saying about Elbridge Gary and the Democratic Republicans. It was very, it was very, very toxic and very divisive time in American politics. Around the time when Gary was governor of Massachusetts, this is around the time of the War of eighteen twelve, and the Democratic Republicans had James Madison in the White House. And the Federalists absolutely were not only anti-war, but they were also very, very much opposed to James Madison. And Gary felt, I think he felt not only was an attack on him, but I think it was also clearly attack on uh, all his principles and ideas, as well as his standing in Massachusetts politics. And so when they, he decides, along with his Democratic-Republican allies, to redraw the map of uh, the electoral map of Massachusetts. He redraws around places like Haverhill, Massachusetts, in a way that resembled nothing like anything normal, but it re- resembled somewhat like a monster, like a creature. The Federalist media claimed that this redrawing looked like a salamander. And when they associated Elbridge Gary with this heavily 
politicized map that was clearly redrawn to politically benefit the Democratic Republicans the most. They called it gerrymandering. Or when they probably put it out, probably Gary and Mandarin put together. But then eventually, we now pronounce it as gerrymandering. That is where we get gerrymandering from. And even to this day, especially around this time of the decade, right after the census, gerrymandering continues to be a very, very divisive issue and will be for a very, very long time. Gary was a very, very practiced and very professional politician in a lot of ways, but his popularity really started to plummet. The Federalists were going after him in the press, in the uh, Massachusetts legislature. Uh, Gary all, uh, ha- did, I think, make a lot of mistakes too. He tried to silence a number of his critics in the media. He also tried to have some of his family members appointed as part of the state government. He started to act a lot more partisan. He wasn't that same person who could bridge between those who want a stronger national government and those who want more states' rights. He seemed to be very much, maybe almost too comfortable in the Democratic-Republican Party. And because of his... Uh, his errors and his, his actions and being unable to really distance himself from this new term of gerrymandering and the actions that he took against his opposition, he lost re-election the very next year, 1812. This was a huge blow to him and to the Democratic Republicans. But this was really, I think, years in the making. And I'm not going to go too much into depth of what Gary did throughout his career, but he was he served as a member of the House in the, the first uh, first Congress. He served for a few terms in for Massachusetts. Like I said earlier, he ran a number of times, just couldn't beat that Caleb Strong. My my theory, and this is just a theory, but the fact that Caleb Strong's last name literally means fortitude, I have to hypothesize. That that was one thing that gave Mr. Strong an advantage. Because who would who would not want to vote for someone named Governor Strong, right? Anyway, um, Gary eventually served as vice president under Madison, uh, but he he really started to face difficulties with health. Just twenty months into his term as vice president, Elbridge Gary died on November 23rd, 1814. To this day, he is the only signer of the Declaration of Independence who is buried in Washington, D.C. in Congressional Cemetery, which is near the old RFK Stadium, still around, but it's in a pretty historic part of Washington, D.C. Elbridge Gary, to me, is... One who I I admire a lot in a number of ways, but perhaps not in a conventional manner. He was certainly not one to even be very much a personable guy. In fact, some people thought he was way too serious. He was also one who also fell into this world of partisanship. He saw it and he experienced it firsthand. 
But what it was truly admirable about Gary and something, whether people liked him or disagree with him, whether it was then or now, he was someone who you could not just say, oh, he's, he's just in it for political reasons. Clearly, he, he was wealthy. He had built up a lot of wealth in his career. There's no question that he, he earned it and he did a lot to earn it himself. However, Elbridge Carey was not the one to say, well, after reading the Constitution, I think it's okay. Imagine, imagine if our founders and the, the signers of the Declaration of Independence said that the Constitution is okay. It does a good job. Maybe some people know what they're doing. Individual rights, they'll be around somewhere. That's the way it is. That's not what Elbridge Carey believed in. He really believed that it is not okay for the Constitution to not have a Bill of Rights. It is not okay when the national government only describes itself but doesn't outline what the states can do. It's not okay when the executive branch and the legislative branch are in bed all the time and are controlling the entire apparatus without any kind of checks and balances from the judicial branch or from the state side to control its power. Gary really was a a champion at his time of a lot of the values of Republicanist uh, Democratic principles. Uh, He continued to do so, I believe, even when he was dealing with a lot of partisanship. And this really kind of brings it to the three points that I'd like to leave all of you as part of a tradition on the Sacred Honor series, which is to have three main takeaways for each episode. The first one is, always ask yourself the two big questions. Where is the civil liberty or the individual freedom of what I'm proposing or what I believe in? And where is the security part? There's always going to be this debate between the fine lines of freedom and security. You have to have both. Without one, you can't have the other. And Gary was always one to really change the conversation from bitter partisan differences to ones that are about freedom versus security, ensuring that we have some amount of both. I don't even believe it's necessarily balanced because balance is not really a, a right term. You know, what what are you exactly are you you balancing in terms of of an equal outcome? Balance is more around the approach. What can we do to ensure security? while also securing freedom, and vice versa. For example, and I just put out a couple examples here. For example, if someone were to put out a China competitiveness bill, we need business and our country to be competitive. It's part of, of our economic security. There's also national security bills. Those are very, very essential. But the other important question to ask is, where is the civil liberties and the individual freedom part of that? That's not to say that one has to agree or disagree with such a bill about China competitiveness. And to be frank, this is a very, very broad topic and broad bill. But it just compels one to ask that question because that is the part of American political culture, which is to frequently ask yourself these questions of what someone is proposing and to try and imagine that there's two people or two or more people on both sides of the aisle both sides of the freedom and security debate, and just being completely honest 
with what your views are and inviting others to contribute to be part of that conversation. Same thing with the other side of the coin here. If someone, let's just say, uh, wanted to opt out of vaccine mandates, you know, to, for one who supports a lot of the personal freedom side of things, that's important too about the personal freedoms, and we need to really cherish that. But then the other question that has to just be asked is, where is the security part? How do we ensure people are safe as well? I hope that you understand the, this this particular provision here about the personal freedom and individual freedom versus security, because that balance, not balance of outcome, but the balance of weighing those two options in a fair way, that is going to be very, very key to the success of our civic culture. Next on is, I encourage people to speak out literally, figuratively, and civilly. Literally, Elbridge Gary was one to speak out about the Bill of Rights. Figuratively, oh yes, he, he was the one who was pushing up the motions to have Bill of Rights. He was the one, obviously, in Massachusetts to push that through his actions. He put his words into those actions. But he also did it in a civil manner. And on this podcast, we frequently talk about civility because this is such an important part of our foundation in our country. Without civility, we don't have anything. We don't have people. We don't have each other. Gary made a lot of enemies. But here's the thing. As you probably heard in the language he used for that address to Congress, he didn't call out people names. He didn't say that people were dumb or people were stupid or or maligned or loyalists. I mean, heck, he was actually even called a lot of these names. He was actually considered, at that time, it was considered very bad. He was considered like basically like a French-loving uh, a person who was constantly subjugated to foreign interference. But throughout his conduct in his time, he was still respectful of those members who put in all that effort and work uh, and those who had the still as good intentions as he did. Uh, he still recognized their contributions. That is why he said things the way he said in that letter. So when you speak out, have confidence and have those moral in integrities and those values that you espouse about democracy and whatnot, but do so civilly. Make sure that you recognize other people's contributions as well and recognize the people, people who do have the good intentions, but perhaps who just need a bit more guidance if they disagree with you. Just like how with Elbridge Gary, I don't think he felt that others in the Constitutional Convention were bad. He, he felt that he had good, they had good intentions, but very bad execution. Very, very similar theme nowadays in a lot of ways. And finally, and finally, take some time to self-reflect on your policy positions and values because partisanship affects even the best people. This is a really good tie-in with Elbridge Gary. This is not to insinuate that everyone is tarnished with partisanship. It's just that partisanship affects us in all different ways. We might not think that we are partisan people, but we are surrounded by partisans. And the real question is, how do we deal with them? How do we ensure that we are respectful to others and keep a culture of civility while at the same time calling out people's wrongful actions? Gary encountered a lot of partisanship in his life, and I'm not saying that every single bit of criticism towards him was unjustified. 
I believe that there were some things where if I was there in the room, perhaps in the constitutional convention, there were probably would have been times when people had said, okay, Gary, just, just leave it for now. We'll come back to it later. And there are certainly positions that uh, may just have been a bit too early, might have been too early for his time. But Gary was very much a product, I think, through my research and through my readings, a product of partisanship in early America. He wasn't the only victim of partisanship, but I believe that it was because of those really, really bad criticism that he got from the Federalist Party for years, stemming from the time of the Constitutional Convention all the way into the 1810s. He had to deal with an onslaught of defeats, of criticisms from principally one party. And he, I think he had a very, very emotional and passionate reaction to that. Whether or not is justified, certainly when we think of gerrymandering, probably not the best feeling out there. But what I think what it just goes to show, though, is that even with someone like Elbridge Gary, someone who could navigate a lot of that partnership early on, he still had to deal with it. And he's, in many, many ways, he was very much a victim of partisanship. It's unfortunate. It really is unfortunate. It doesn't have to be that way. Partisanship does not have to do this to every single person. But it is a serious matter. And what I hope that everyone can take out of this is that when we believe in a policy, we have certain values, let's just take some time to realize that we are having biases. We are not perfect individuals. We are influenced by various different forces and influences that we might not be conscious about. As long as we're being honest about those and we have that inclination to open our minds a bit, to have those conversations and discussions, like we mentioned before, we'll be in a much better state of civility and of civics in America. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode about Elbridge Gary, the seventh signer of the Declaration of Independence. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope that you enjoyed all of our 2021 episodes and looking forward to plenty more in 2022. Have a great rest of your holiday season and 2021. We will see you next year. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.